All right, you ready to get down to business, church? Ready to get to work? Romans chapter 2, we're making our way through the book of Romans. The big title over the book of Romans is God's Amazing Grace. God's Amazing Grace that saved you. God's Amazing Grace that saved me. But we find ourselves understanding the book of Romans based on four buildings. Do you remember what they are? If you have your notebooks or you wrote it down last week, if you didn't write it down, you can write it down this week. The first building, chapters 1 through 5, we are in the courthouse of God. And the challenge of the courthouse is before you understand the grace of God and what you're saved for, you've got to understand what you're saved from. So in the courthouse, we understand and we see the justice and the wrath of God. That's not a popular topic these days to talk about the wrath of God. We love to talk about the love of God and the grace of God. And believe me, I do too. But none of those things make sense until you understand the wrath and the justice of God. So the courthouse that gets exposed everybody's found guilty in the courthouse of God so that then everybody has the opportunity to be saved the exact same way by God's amazing grace. Whether you're Jew or Gentile or Fluco or Charlottesvillian or wherever you're from, God's grace is there for you. So that's the first building. The second building we find in chapters six through eight. Does anybody remember what that building is? It's the power plant of God's grace where we learn about how to do life God's way. And then chapters 9 through 11, we move from the power plant, God's grace, so we can live life his way. Then we move into the the synagogue, where chapters 9 through 11, the question is, what about Israel? What happens to them? And we find out that God saves Israel the same way he saves the Gentiles. So in the synagogue, we find out how God deals with Israel. We see God's wisdom, God's wisdom. And finally, chapters 12 through the end of the book, chapter 16, we are in the the temple of God, the house of God, where we understand more about God's will for the church, that we would be not conformed to the image of the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds and how God's amazing grace works out in the life of the church. And this is great. I couldn't be more excited about going through Romans together. So we find ourselves still where the the first building, we're still in the courthouse of God. So we expect that the sermon today is going to deal with the wrath of God. And I know you got to endure with me through the wrath of God, because by chapter three, as I said, everybody's going to be guilty. So we're introduced to another person in the courtroom. The first person we met back in chapter one was the blatantly sinful, God-rejecting sort of pagan or Gentile or rebel against God, the challenge there was we called that person an ignorant person. And I'm kind of thinking maybe there'd be a better term. I think maybe we should call that person the materialist, meaning that this is a person in chapter one who, although they have seen God's general revelation, God's revealed himself in his creation, and we know that if there's a created thing, created things don't happen by accident. You don't accidentally get a supercomputer by accident. Like that doesn't happen by accident. I sat at Cup of Joe, the coffee shop, met a a woman and her son there. Son was nine years old. And we were just talking about, I was asking questions about the Bible I was studying and getting my mind wrapped around Romans chapter one at the time. And I said, let me try something. Let me ask your nine-year-old a question. I put my iPhone on the table and I said, what would you think if I told you that this iPhone just kind of came into being by accident? And he said, that's ridiculous. And I said, I agree. 
I agree. That's ridiculous because inventions don't happen by accident. So chapter one, the person who's a materialist worships the material. Instead of worshiping the unseen God who's seen through his creation, clearly seen through his creation, they choose to worship the creation. Only what they can see, only what's material, only what can be understood by the senses, so to speak. So a material person really longs for just material goods, material things, a life on the material level, not thinking about morality coming from God, really not wanting to think about God, rejecting God. And that leads to God giving them over to their twisted mind that happens because they reject God. And Paul lays out all of these behaviors that are consequences of living light in God rejection. That was chapter one. So that person was without excuse in the courthouse. So that person is kind of now taking their seat in the courthouse. And as they sit down and we introduce you to chapter two, we meet another person who stands up in the courthouse. And as they cross paths, this second person now coming into the presence of the judge, God himself, I imagine this person would give a smug look to that sinner from chapter one. They would walk by them and kind of look down their nose at them and their self-righteousness and their self-proclaimed goodness. And then they would take their place before God as they would look again, glance back at that horrible person that is so sinful. And they would say, God, I just want to let you know, I completely concur with what you said about those sinful people. I mean, the sexually immoral, the proud, the boasters, the murderers. I couldn't agree more. They are the problem with this world. They're an issue for everybody. And you're right to judge them. I'm finally glad that justice is being done. So, and by the way, I don't really know why I'm here in the courthouse. Uh, so I'm going to ask you if I can just go. I mean, I agree with you about right and wrong. I agree with you that these things should be punished. So how about I just leave? And you go on with things. And that's where chapter two picks up. Verse one says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. Which man? Whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Can you imagine the gasp in the courtroom? Can you imagine the surprise of the morally good person? Sometimes people call him the moralist or the self-righteous, really we'll find out this person is a hypocrite. This is the person that we meet all the time. They're the good person. They're not like those people. They judge by setting themselves up to be the judge. They're easy on themselves, but hard on others. Their sin is justified in their own mind, but not that other person's. You think about the story of the Pharisee and the publican where the tax collector is there beating his chest saying, be merciful to me. And the Pharisee is saying, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And we think about the story of the woman caught in adultery who's dragged there before the Pharisees and they want Jesus to condemn her to death for her adultery. And Jesus starts to write in the sand and, and they all split, they all hightail it out of there. And Jesus says to them, let him who was without sin cast the first stone. And there's no way to even judge anything unless you have a standard of judgment. Where does the standard of judgment come from? Does it come from you? It comes from God. So the question that is before us here by this moral person, or this good person, problem is, is just because you say that you agree with those things, the problem is you do the same things that you agree are bad. Let me give you an example have lots of conversations with people. Learn to be a good question asker. When people make statements, 
learn to ask questions to help clarify what they're saying. So for instance, I had an interesting talk with a person who was uh, giving me a hard time telling me, well, it was political season and it was Democrats and Republicans. And, and they were saying, well, you know what? I think the problem with those Republicans. So you can already hear the language. Whenever somebody says those people, you know, I've set myself above. See, I'm not like those people. Those people are really mean. And so those Republicans, well, they don't do this and they don't help the poor enough and on and on it went. And then I said to this person, I said, well, tell me something. You've recognized clearly that helping the poor is a good thing. And you're upset because those Republicans, and this is just a conversation, I'm not making a judgment here, they don't do those things that you, and you think that they should. That's right. Well, let me ask you a question. How much are you doing personally to help the poor? And you know what the answer was to that? Zip, zilch, nada, nothing. So they're in the courthouse, that same, by, by your own confession that you, number one, as a judge, you know the truth and you know what's right and wrong, which is even more heaping in guilt upon you because knowing it, confessing it, being able to identify it in other people, you then still don't do it yourself. Conversation after conversation like this I have with people about such things. Remember the Occupy movement that was happening a number of years ago? The 99% and the 99% were mad about the greed of the 1% and that 1%, they have everything and they should be giving and generous with us who are poor. And you see, because they're greedy. You hear the judgment? They're greedy. And then I asked someone, I was at the downtown mall during those times and I grabbed a person that was down there with their protestation and said, okay, well, so explain to me the issue. And they explained, you know, the greed of this group of people. And I said, well, tell me something. When's the last time you did something for the poor? And it was, what do you, but I am the poor. I'm the one who's in need. Wait a second. There's a lot of really poor people around the world. There's a lot of people way more poor than you. You see, we justify our own sin and we magnify other people's sin. Look, you just have to be honest with yourself that you are blind to your own sin. It's a really freaky thing, isn't it? We are so easy to see it in other people But the very thing we see in other people is probably because we do it ourselves. We're sensitive to it in other people. I mean, when you're driving, it's like, you know, when someone cuts you off, the judgment begins. They're clearly an idiot. They clearly didn't go to driving school. They clearly need to have their license revoked. How could they do such a stupid thing and stop at the yield sign in the roundabout? It's a yield sign. It's not a stop sign. Clearly, they are defunct in their driving. Well, I live with my self-righteousness in, in my driving ability until I pull out in front of somebody. And then I see the look they give me and I go, hey, wait, I didn't see you. I'm sorry, you know, it was an accident. I didn't see you. And so I justify my own poor driving. I'm a good driver. I just didn't see you. But they never got a chance to defend themselves, that other person who, for some reason, stopped at the yield sign. And I don't understand why. Think about this. Think about a man named David in the Bible. Remember David, King David? We know what he went through, right? We know he committed adultery. And he hid this thing for like a year. He sat on this. It was stewing in him and he wouldn't confess it. He commits adultery. And then to try to hide it, he sends Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to the front lines of the war to get killed. So he basically commits murder and he's living with this. And then this guy named Nathan, Nathan's a prophet of God. And Nathan knew exactly what was going on. God sends him to David. And it doesn't say, Nathan, I want you to go to David 
and tell David what a miserable louse of a guy he is for doing what he did. Is that what Nathan does? He doesn't. Because if you directly confront someone who's a good person and they've identified themselves, they've built their whole identity around being a good person, even though they're not, then you confront their identity, they're going to initially reject that. They're going to say, no, no, no. You're going to deny it. Because you're basically in denial of your own sin. So what does Nathan do? He gives a parable. He tells David, he says, hey, David, come on over here. I got a question for you. Question for me? Sure, I'm the king. I'm good at answering questions. It's a legal question. So let me tell you the story. There was two guys. They were neighbors. One guy had a great big farm, lots of sheep. He was wealthy, lots of big herds of sheep, had it all. And then he had a neighbor who was poor. They lived in the same neighborhood, and this guy was poor. He had one lamb, but that one lamb was so special to him. It was like a daughter to him. He loved that lamb. It was like a daughter. He cared for it, let it live in his own house, raised it that way. And so here's what happens, David. I need your advice. You see, the rich guy invited some friends over for dinner. They were going to have lamb chops for dinner. And the rich guy, instead of killing one of his own lambs from his own flock, he went over to the neighbor's house and stole his precious lamb, brought it back, and made lamb chops out of his neighbor's lamb. What do you think should be done with that guy? And David says, that guy deserves to die. And not only that, he should restore fourfold what he'd stolen. By the way, that's what the law called for. The law didn't call stealing a death penalty. But David did. Did you notice his overreaction? He said, that guy deserves to die. Now, it's hard to restore fourfold after you've been killed for your sin. I'm not sure how that works out. But we see David's response. And then Nathan turns the tables on him. Do you know the story? Nathan turns the tables and he says, David, you're the man. He could see sin and pronounce judgment on it in someone else's life. And then Nathan showed him that what you just pronounced judgment on was your own sin. And so you say, well, this man who is judging others and condemning himself because he knows better, because he points it out, because he can clearly see it. It says, for you who practice the same things, well, you could say, well, I'm not sexually immoral or I'm not a homosexual, or I don't hate God, or I'm not violent. The minute you set yourself up to be a judge, you're proud. And I'm sure there's those of us in here that would say we struggle with envy. And Jesus takes murder to the level of anger in your mind and lust to the level of thought life in your mind. So you may not do the exact same things, but the point is that's being made is that there's really nobody that's a good person. And the minute you begin to judge others, You're pronouncing judgment on yourself because you do the same stupid things. You just wrap it up neater. Are we together, church? So this is the huge epidemic of our world is to talk to people who are self-perceived and self-confessed good people. There's always someone else who's going to hell, but it's not them. Well, they know Hitler's going to hell because there's a belief in heaven and hell. And I say, well, okay, so let's talk about this. You believe in heaven and hell, right? Yes, I believe in heaven and hell. So are you going to heaven or hell? I'm going to heaven. Okay, well, who's going to hell? Well, see, now you've got to be the judge. If you're basing it on something in your mind, some stratification of people, for some reason Adolf Hitler's going to hell, but you're going to heaven. So what about your neighbor? What about your boss? Are they going to heaven or hell? See, now you've got to decide. See how that gets? It gets kind of hairy, doesn't it? How do you decide who's good enough and who's bad enough? Because you've already decided you're good enough. Somehow, you're good enough. 
it gets really kind of hairy. And actually, the way this all plays out by the time we get to chapter three is we find out that, and I think you know it in your heart. Most people do know it in their hearts that you've sinned. And Paul says, everybody's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. From Mother Teresa to whatever Pope is reigning now in the Vatican, I don't keep up with these things, but no matter who you are on the face of the earth, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So verse two, it's a lot on verse one there. That's the gist of the passage. But verse two says, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. See, God can't be fooled. You can't trick God by doing a couple of nice things here and there and then going home and living however you please. See, God's not going to be tricked by it. You can fool people, but the Bible says all things are naked and open before the eyes of God. So when God judges, it's always according to truth, not according to who has the best lawyer. Some of you guys are good lawyers too. I mean, you are good at justifying yourself, good at defending why it was right to be really angry and throw a fit and be irate at my wife or my kids. We know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things, so you're looking and pointing the finger at other people, he says, do you think that as you point to the other people and point the finger at them, and then you do the same thing, that somehow they're going to get judged, but you're going to escape? Like somehow do you think God is going to play favorites on your behalf? And although their sin is worthy of judgment, somehow you're going to heaven based on a free ticket, somehow, a free ride. And again, we're working our way through. If you're a believer and you're saved and you know Jesus and all that, you recognize we're just building a case here. I'm not saying to you that here and now you're going to hell. I'm saying here and now we're talking about how does one be accepted and be righteous before God. So if you're judging others and condemning them, it doesn't make sense to see the rationale is faulty. If they're condemned, then you're condemned. Unless you have a false sense of how these things work. Verse four says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So the answer might come when you say, well, they're condemned and I'm practicing the same thing, but I'm going to escape judgment. You might say, well, look at my life. I'm a blessed man. I mean, that person, that alcoholic, that drunk, that criminal, that guy who's in the prison, they're clearly getting punishment for what they did. And if I was in a bad place with God, if God was mad at me, he'd be punishing me too. And because I'm not getting punished by God, my life is good. I'm okay. I got, you know, I got a house. I got family. I keep a job. Then I must be okay with God. And that's why Paul says, actually, verse four, you're despising or thinking little of the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and his long suffering, not knowing that it's God's goodness. It's his patience with you that should be leading you to repent from the sin you're living in and not presume upon God that he's leaving you alone because he's not judging you. You see, a lot of times we mistake God's patience for his approval. And just because the hammer hasn't dropped on you yet, you think, I'm getting away with it. Watch what Paul says next to the person who says, I'm getting away with it. Verse five, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, meaning your heart that will not repent, will not change direction, continues to live in sin, in rejection of God, although outwardly confessing to be a good person, inwardly still living in rebellion toward God. He says, actually, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath 
in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render, and he quotes the Old Testament, to each one according to his deed. Notice that, to each one according to his what, church? His words? To the things he said amen in at the Bible study? I mean, this is the thing, church, and this is where I think we fall in here. Paul could be talking to Jews, who certainly would have felt that they had a better place with God, that they were God's favorite. But he certainly could be talking to the visible church, so to speak, because really the judgment doesn't come because you've attended Bible study, you've said amen, you've agreed with the sermon. Oh, pastor, that was a great sermon. Oh, couldn't agree more. And then go out and live contradictory to it, go out and live hypocritically to it. He says, in fact, you're storing up for yourself. The more you live in that sin, that's all accumulating into your account that will be called into payment at the day of judgment. So some of you have a Roth IRA. Some of you guys have retirement account, right? You've got a Roth IRA. Well, this is the Roth IRA. That's not the one you want. And a person thinks, again, a person who is the moral person has an outward understanding of right and wrong and morality and yet is living contradictory even to their own conscience. Have you found that most people don't even do the things they know are right? The person who defies their very conscience, they know they should do that. They know they should help there. They know they should love their neighbor, but they don't. And so the good person facade begins to break down. And what's happening instead is they're just ripening for God's judgment. He's going to render to each according to his deeds. The deeds never lie. Now, there's a couple ways to look at this, and I'm going to give you both ways. We're only going to go to verse 11. Look at verse 7 when he talks about rendering judgment or wrath in the day of wrath of revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He's going to render or give back to each one according to his deeds. What's he going to give back? To one group, he's going to give eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for or looking for glory, honor, and immortality. So that's the first group, that verse 7 group, that God would render to them the reward, which is eternal life, because of their patient continuance in doing good and seeking for glory and honor. Now, the challenge with this is we know that Paul is not teaching salvation by works. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? If I just do good, and continue doing good for a long time till I die, then God's going to reward me for my good deeds. And we know that there's plenty in the Bible. The whole book of Romans is about the fact that we're not saved by doing good works. So one group of commentators, one group of people that study the Bible and comment on these things, say that this group in verse 7, they don't really exist. It's a theoretical group. In other words, nobody continually practices and does good, seeking for glory and honor and immortality. So they would say that that group doesn't exist. Nobody does that. And would confirm that by saying, Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you're seeking to earn your way to heaven by continually doing good, you can do it. You can try that. And if you could do it, you'd get a reward, but you're never going to do it. So you'll never get the reward. Now, the other side of the coin, what some others say, again, good biblical scholars say that what Paul is pointing to is that our deeds always demonstrate the faith that we have. That the same faith that you exercise that saves you is the same faith that changes your life, the direction of the course of your life, and your works, the things you do, are evidence for the faith that saves you. Does that make sense? 
Uh, James talks about this. He says, don't be hearers only, but be doers of the word of God, right? For someone who hears is like a person who looks in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what they saw, never does anything to change it. A doer is the person who looks in the mirror and sees what God is saying and responds to it in obedience. And so you can always tell what kind of tree it is. So this verse 7 would be speaking about people that have clearly repented. Remember, that's what Paul was saying. There are these unrepentant people. But some, he said, are believers. They've repented, and their life demonstrates that because they continually do good. They're seeking for God's glory and God's honor and for immortality through God. And that their works are a demonstration of that. So which one is right? I don't know. Going to have to ask Paul someday. I think they both work, don't you? I think they're both biblically provable. But which is he saying? I can't say that I know for sure. But then there's the other group that we won't have any problem identifying. Look at verse 8. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what are they going to get? What's the repayment for their deeds their whole life? Indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Stop right there. So God is just. That's what Paul is trying to say, that God is fair and he's just, and he renders a person not according to their words, not according to the confession, not according to their denomination. Can I say that again? God doesn't care what denomination you go by. He cares about what you do. That's a proof of who you are. You can claim to be anything you want. And I've met a lot of people who claim to be Christians, but there ain't no evidence to convict them of being a Christian. There's nothing in their life that looks Christian. So you have to ask yourself, well, are you really? But there's no fruit from that. Really, all you're doing is you're self-seeking. You're doing your own thing. You're disobeying God. There's no sensitivity to the things of God. And he says, doesn't matter what you say, when it all hashes out on the other side, that it'll all be clear. God is going to be fair and he's going to be just. And it won't matter. Look at the next part of that. It won't matter if you're who? Jew or Greek. See, the Jews would have said, we're God's favorite people. Doesn't matter if you got baptized as an infant. Doesn't matter if you grew up in the church. See, to them, the Jews thought the Greeks were destined for destruction. That was it. There's no hope for them. They were just fuel for God's fires of hell. And so Paul's saying, really, it's not about your confession that you're the people of God. It's about the fact of how you live. Whether it's Jew or Greek, verse 10 says, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who worked what is good, also to the Jew first and to the Greek. Verse 11, Paul wraps it up. He says, for there is no partiality with God. You can't bribe God. He won't show favorites. He won't play favorites. He doesn't treat this group different than that group. Everybody's the same. Skin color, age, size, socioeconomic group, doesn't matter. No one is more favored by God. God treats everybody the same. He is just and fair and righteous. Amen, church? All right. So we've dealt with the materialist in chapter one. We've dealt with the moralist in chapter two so far. We'll pick up next time we get together in chapter two. We'll deal with the religious. Oh boy. Are you ready for that one? 